Welcome back to Camden Cast, your official, well, sort of official Baltimore Orioles podcast from CamdenChat.com. Joining you once again, I'm your host, Mark Brown. Along with me for the ride is Andrew Gibson, still uh, still tunneling into the innards of the baseball statistical world, as I understand it. That's correct. Uh, somewhere down in, in the basements of Baseball Info Solutions, I am broadcasting live. And we have a special guest tonight, Camden Chat's resident curmudgeon and the draft guru of thecamdenchat.com, James Feldman. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So we're a little bit removed from the draft, but we're going to kind of try and wind back and talk about the Orioles draft in particular. So uh, it was very exciting just kind of leading into it because Dylan Bundy was kind of a guy I think Everybody, even more curmudgeonly uh, people like James, could be excited about the prospect of the Orioles drafting. Although the way the draft played out with uh, Anthony Rendon, or Rendon, I'm not sure how to say his name, it was, uh, it was a big, big surprise that he was still on the board when the Orioles picked. So how are we feeling that we got Bundy instead of, say, Rendon, who everybody thought might have been the first pick around this time last year? Well, I feel... I'd say I feel pretty good about it. Uh, it's kind of a one of those tough decisions where both players have excellent things to recommend them, and you couldn't necessarily have made a wrong choice with either pick. Uh, obviously, we don't know what the medical reports on Rendon said, uh, and the Orioles do. And... We were not the only team who passed. A lot of other teams passed. So that says to me that they were probably more troubling than we had been led to believe in the run-up to the draft. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I generally tend to favor the position player over the pitcher uh, in the top of the draft. I think that position prospects are generally more valuable than pitching prospects. But... There's not a lot of bad that you can say about getting the arguably the top pitching prospect in the entire class with the fourth pick. And there's also not much bad you can say about getting a player with a top pick in the draft who really wants to come to your team. And Bundy has said, according to Joe Jordan privately and publicly, that he really wanted to come to the Orioles and pitch with his brother. The kid knows how to. I'm sorry. The kid knows how to make a good first impression. I think, James. That's interesting that um, you say you think a position player is more valuable than a pitcher. Uh, What's the reasoning behind that? Well, first of all, you know the research that's been done has shown that top positional prospects generate greater wins above replacement than top pitching prospects over the course of their career. They're simply more stable. They have a lower injury risk. Uh, They're a better investment in terms of, you know, getting value. So that's one thing that I think is just a simple fact. If all things being equal, position players, position prospects are worth more than pitching prospects. On the other hand, I you know, wrote for the site, and this is generally true, that the best pitchers in baseball do come from the top two rounds of the draft. 
And so it's hard to argue with taking pitching talent uh, in the top of the draft, although you do have to recognize that there's a greater chance that that talent might bust. It's interesting because the Orioles have kind of had to deal with that debate a few years ago when it was the Brian Mattis draft. Because I remember the two names the Orioles were really on were Brian Mattis or like Justin Smoke. And uh, there was kind of that same debate about, well, do we want to get the hitter or do we want to get the pitcher? And I think Brian Mattis was a great pick. But Justin Smoke, now that he's uh, made it into Seattle, he's kind of launching into his whatever he's going to be uh, this year so. It's just it's it's just interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see how those two careers kind of uh, kind of play out. Well, I think it's sort of a uh, you can't go wrong no matter who you pick. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> and then I mean, and then you pick Matt Hobgood like uh, last year. So well, okay, but we're talking about Brian Mattis versus Justin Smoke yes. or Dylan Bundy versus Anthony Rendon. Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't know how either one of their careers are going to turn out, but I feel like, and I and I felt the way then that I feel now, um, you can't go wrong. I mean, these are two top-of-the-draft talents. Take one, um, basically, and, and be happy with it. I guess that's my take. Uh, I, again, it's one of those things where, I mean, I wrote in the article that I my review of the first five rounds that I feel like Mattis and Smoke will always be linked in the minds of, you know, Orioles fans who follow the draft. And I think the same will be true for Bundy and Rendon. Um, but, you know, we were very fortunate that we had either talent available to us with the fourth pick. And that we were able to make a choice for one of those guys, one of the premium guys that we didn't, you know, dial back to a, to a lower cost option like Archie Bradley uh, or a lower ceiling option, I think that that is what really matters. We needed to get a superstar caliber talent with that pick, and we got James, I know that was your biggest fear, that the Orioles would kind of go cheap again rather than take uh, take the bold pick because... Bundy, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, there's a lot of gamesmanship, whatever, in the negotiation. But there was one report, I think, where it was like, Bundy's going to ask for $30 million or whatever. And you hear all this crazy stuff, like last year, Strasburg. I don't even remember what he was supposed to be. Or two years ago, I guess, for Strasburg. Um, you know, Bryce Harper last year. Like, oh, my God, these guys are going to ask for all these ridiculous contracts. So, you know. Well, here's a question. So what do you guys think it will take to just sign Bundy. I'm, I'm certainly hoping there won't really be drama at the end, although I'm sure he won't sign till the last hour just because that's how it goes these days. Well, I like the quote uh, right after he was drafted. Somebody asked him about this and he said, well, I think the number my agent floated was like 30 million. And somebody said like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is, that, is, is that accurate? And he said like, well, that's what I heard or, or something like that. And uh, that seems wildly unrealistic um i i've been sort of pondering all day i was reading earlier about uh the possibility of bundy getting a major league deal versus a a minor league deal i guess i'm scarred on those after the whole adam lowen thing but it seems like there's levels of difference for one bundy is regarded to be pretty polished as far as high school arms go so i mean 
that might not be terrible as it could be, but I don't know. I mean, I think I I think at the end, Bundy will sign for between seven and eight million dollars. Uh, you know, he'll sign for close to uh, a record for a prep pitcher, but he won't set the record for a prep pitcher. Uh, I think it's preferable, and I think it's probably worth about half a million dollars to not give him a major league deal, uh, just because of the impact on the 40-man roster. It's not really that I think that he's going to not make the majors in four years as much as I think that you know, that's one more 40-man spot that you can use to claim another team's player off waivers, uh, you know, or to be a little bit more flexible with your roster. And that's something I think that has a lot of value. As, you know, I've written on the site, I do think that the Orioles should be more aggressive in using the waiver wire. Right. The Orioles kind of just uh, have some 40-man dead weight, and that's just what they do. And, uh, you know, like I think probably the last two years, what is it, Pedro Florman Jr. has been on the I was just going to say, I was just going to say, we can't give Bundy a 40-man roster spot because then where will Pedro Florman Jr. go? Or, or Pedro Viola? Where will they go? Well, Pedro Viola looked respectable uh, in his brief... Uh, encounter with the Orioles major league roster. This, I mean, this is the first year he's been able to say that because I think the last two years he kind of put in an appearance and was uh, was not very good. Well, excuse me for being skeptical over this guy had a not horrible one out. Yeah. I mean, so. yes. I, I, I think that you could argue you could definitely argue that uh, both of those players are not really deserving of their 40-man roster spot. Uh I also think, though, that you have a real general level of timidity that the Orioles under McPhail have used in terms of, uh, you know, using the 40-man roster to grab players to see if they might be useful. Uh, You know, there's a whole host of people who have been designated for assignment this season who, at the very least, you can't say that they are definitely more useless than Clay Rapata. Well, that's. It would be hard to make an argument that that some of these guys are more useless than Clay Rapata. And if you want to go well, and think about some guys that the Orioles have let go just within the last couple of years that are still like in the majors, I think one is probably Justin Turner, who's I think doing decent for the Mets this year, and uh, Pedro Beato, I believe, got picked in the Rule 5 draft and is also doing okay for the Mets this year. And it's just, it was disappointing to just see them just kind of give up on those guys, especially like Turner. It's like, okay, we have to keep Julio Lugo, so we're just going to get rid of Justin Turner. And now he's, you know, if he goes anywhere and is okay, that was just a terrible decision. It's Julio Lugo. I mean, come on. Yeah, if he goes anywhere and is a like a reasonable bench option, I mean, that's a loss because... We gave that up for nothing, right? Just so that we could hold on to he who will not be named. Right. I did. I did commit the cardinal sin of actually naming yeah. him. Uh, hopefully, Stacy won't ban me. Well, you know, there's this. The Orioles seem to have a great fear of being embarrassed. Where <laughs> isn't where, that the most ridiculous thing? you could have possibly said though like 
it's not embarrassing enough being the perennial doormat that the Orioles are. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more, but the reality that I keep seeing is this, this need to find some mediocre middle reliever who they can pay five, six million dollars a year for to shore up the bullpen. This, you know, need to keep players like Lugo or, you know, to sign players like Vlad out of this fear of, you know, what if we play Brandon Snyder and he's just abysmal? What will we ever do? It's uh, a very conservative uh, style of general managing, I, I would I would say, I guess. I think it is embarrassing for people who are on the fan level, well, the very involved fan level, I think it's fair to say, applies to anybody that's actually listening to this podcast. It's very frustrating to just have, embarrassing really, to have like Mike Gonzalez on the roster. I mean, he's, he's a favorite whipping boy of this podcast, obviously. But I mean, you know, him and Kevin Gregg, it's just like, what are we doing signing these guys? But that's, that's what he does. I don't know. Well, Mike Gonzalez, I feel, you know, I feel like if you take away the fact that he was a type A free agent that we lost a draft pick for him, his signing makes more sense to me than Greg's. Because he at least did have a history of above average performance, while Greg is just sort of a serviceable arm. Well, I think the thing that gets lost in that is when you're talking about relief pitchers, and I keep meaning to bring up this exact point, and I keep failing to do so, so I'm going to do it right now. And then we... You know, we've gotten horribly off track, but... Um, that's that's part of the fun for everybody. <laughs> uh, you sign a guy like Mike Gonzalez, and he had a great track record. Track record. In Atlanta, he had something like a 2 ERA, something like that. A lot of strikeouts, not a lot of walks. And he was hurt at the beginning of last year, but then he came back on strong. But the, the fact of the matter is, with relievers these guys burn out quickly and suddenly and that's just the nature of the beast with them and signing any of them with a like desire to ride out their hot streak basically is just incredibly foolish um even if you say well you had a great track record outside of the draft pick thing it's a lot more defensible it's still not a smart move. It's not something I could reasonably call a smart move. Because you're just you're, it's a time bomb. Every time you sign a reliever to a big contract, it's a time bomb. Speaking of Gonzalez, by the way, I was just kind of looking up some stuff from last year. His second blown save of the year in the first week on the home opener, Kevin Gregg actually got the save for the Blue Jays in that game. So I just thought that was kind of a funny, uh, funny little bit of symmetry there. And now they're both on the Orioles and driving us crazy. Kevin Gregg giving up the leadoff home run to Adam Lind in the game this afternoon. Fortunately, he had a two-run cushion, so he held on to have a 4-3 to three save, but, you know, that's Kevin Gregg for you. Anyway, yeah, the, the draft. So back to the draft. the draft. Speaking of embarrassing things, after the Orioles' first-round pick, before they made another pick, the Tampa Bay Rays had 10 selections between the first round and the supplemental round. So they got extra picks for losing, I think, Carl Crawford to the Red Sox and uh, Rafael Soriano to the Yankees. 
And then I believe they got some supplemental picks for a host of relievers, such as Grant Balfour, Brad, I've actually never said his name, Brad Hopp maybe, uh, Joaquin Benoit, Randy Choate, and Chad Qualls. And they've gotten, they got, they got all those selections, plus their regular first round pick. All because, all between the Orioles' first round selection and the Orioles' second round selection, which is really just remarkable. But on the good, the good side of things, the Yankees, did did, did they get anybody? The Yankees had one supplemental pick. I'm actually not sure who that was for, but they drafted. Uh, that, that was uh, top case, actually. So so they only got one. Pick, yeah, so and they drafted Dante one. Bichette Jr. with that supplemental pick, who was apparently. Uh, Keith Law kind of mocked his hit potential uh, on Twitter. Of course, Keith Law mocks everything, but it was interesting that he kind of took that stand. But anyway, in the second round, the Orioles came around and they selected Jason Esposito, a third baseman from Vanderbilt. And my understanding is he was, Keith Law described him as a good athlete with some raw power, but a slider speed bat that's been exposed this year against better quality pitching. He's supposed to be a very good defensive third baseman with quick, re- quick reactions and an above-average arm. He is a Scott Boris client, although I don't know how much that really matters for second-round picks. Probably not so much. I really, I have no idea. Well, I mean, you know, in theory it means that he'll cost probably a little bit more to sign and sign a little bit later than he would otherwise. I don't see it as being very likely that he goes back to school uh, you know, he had a great, great year as a sophomore, and he was really ticketed for the first round uh, before he just had a weak year uh, as a junior. Um, now, that can mean a lot of things. Obviously, one thing is a question as to how much the new bats in the NCAA, you know, they depressed offense throughout the college ranks, and they depressed Esposito's as well. Uh, I think that, you know, the bat speed complaint is has been a common one, and I don't know how much of that is true and how much of that is people trying to come up with a reason why he had a weaker year this year. Uh, I think he's... He's a good get in this position. Um, That's something uh, every t- every single thing that I've read about Jason Esposito says he's a good pick for where we picked him. Why, why is it always with that qualifier? Well, it's it's because he was projected as being a supplemental round talent, and we got him in the second round, and we got him in the second round with a record number of supplemental picks. So, you know, what it really comes down to is is that he was projected to be off the board. He was off the board in the uh, mock draft that we did over at minor league ball by the time I made my second round pick, uh, which reflects that a lot of players who weren't really projected as being first round talents or supplemental talent, talents were selected before him, partially because several teams that had a lot of picks like the Rays or uh, the Blue Jays made picks that reached a little bit lower down to make sure that those players were signable at or below slot. 
It's worth um, noting, I don't know how they did their ratings, but MLB.com had prospect rankings, and he was the number 40 prospect, although Baseball America ranked him at number 77. But either way, that's that's that's, that's second-round talent, I I think, if they're getting that high up the ranking. I mean, sure. I You know, he was... He was uh, the 60-something pick overall, I want to say, like, 64th or 65th. Um, you know, I've got, for whatever reason, I've got the Project Prospect rankings open in front of me. They have him as their 43rd best prospect. Uh, you know, opinions can vary on him, uh, but everybody seems to think that he's a solid talent in that range. He's got a lot of plus tools. Uh, you know, obviously there are questions about his ability to hit for average, but if he does hit for average, we're talking about, you know, 20 to 30 home run potential and, you know, a plus to potentially gold glove defender at third. Uh, I think that he fills a strong organizational need, although I do think that it's interesting that, uh, as far as impact bats go in this draft class, almost all of them are third basemen for the Orioles. Three of the four potential impact bats that we really got are third basemen. I guess that's where the power is these days. Although the Orioles went on after the second round to get kind of a bevy of what I guess are relief prospects. So the third round pick was Mike Wright. who's was a right-handed pitcher from East Carolina. And he's supposed to have a 96 to 97 mile an hour fastball that needs a lot of work on his secondary pitches and could kind of be in the Dan Klein mold that they drafted last year. But uh, Dan Klein has shoulder problems right now, so hopefully a little bit healthier than Dan Klein himself. Well, he's he's a really big guy. Uh, You know, he's got both a four seam and a two seam fastball. Uh, He's got a slider that's definitely usable, uh, and he needs a better change-up to start, but he, you know, doesn't give up a lot of home runs. He, you know, had a good amount of success, uh, only walks 30 batters in 100 innings. There's promise there. Um, you know, I felt like there was still a lot of high upside bats available where Wright was selected, and I would have liked to have seen one of those bats get selected. Uh, particularly because we went so heavily on pitching, and I feel like we got a lot of similar pitchers. Uh, but, you know, there's not much to dislike about a guy with his kind of size, his kind of, you know, strong, durable frame, and his kind of velocity. I think right after he was taken, there was a guy taken named Brian Brickhouse. And I just kind of wanted the Orioles to take him just because having somebody named Brickhouse would be awesome. Although the reality is in a given draft, probably you're lucky to get maybe, what, three real contributors in the major leagues if you're if you're lucky, no matter how well, good you are. I mean, it's not just about being lucky. Part of it has to do with being ambitious. Good and, and having good uh, good development in your minor league system, I guess. Good uh, talent developers. That's that's true. Although, you know, I'm not I'm not sure that I've yet really figured out how exactly one goes about turning baseball talent into baseball players. There seem to be a handful of people 
like the pitching coach in uh, St. Louis, whose name escapes me right now, who are consistently Dave Duncan. Dave Duncan, who are consistently able to improve players, and I feel like, but I feel like there's it's a really small number of people. Yeah, we uh, certainly saw that uh, in Baltimore with trying to bring in Leo Mazzone from the Braves to make something out of. You know, whoever, Daniel Cabrera or anybody really, but uh, obviously Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, the Orioles did not have any talent on the level of those guys when Mazzone was here, so there was never that good pitching we hoped for. As far as Brickhouse goes, just, you know, there's obviously good upside in Brian Brickhouse, who at the same time I think is someone who benefited a lot from pitching for the same high school as Jamison Taylor. Uh, But he is, you know, a high school pitcher who's only six feet tall. He's not really going to get any bigger. Um, He he doesn't have enough ideal size, really, for me to get too upset that uh, we took right above him. you know, there's there's projection in Brickhouse, and you know his present stuff is respectable. But I also think that, you know, he's somebody who's probably a bit of an overdraft just because scouts have seen him. And I think, you know, when we get to uh, the Orioles' tenth round pick with, uh, you know, Tyler Wilson out of Virginia, I think that that's going to be something that we'll see again. We just, uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, baseball teams don't have a lot of scouts, and the draft plays out in certain ways just because of who the scouts see and who they don't. Is that a, uh, the, it, with uh, the kid from Virginia, is that a case of scouts going to see maybe Danny Holtzen and, and ending up seeing a bunch of other players at Virginia and then yeah, I, I, I would getting think, a higher ranking because of that? I think that that's entirely the case. I mean, Wilson, uh, you know, he's the pick that I like the least of the Orioles' top 12 rounds. He's uh Reliever, he sort of filled the long relief role for Virginia this year, as he did last year. Uh, you know, he is a guy who throws you know a 90 to 92 mile per hour fastball that doesn't project his plus, doesn't have a great secondary offering. Uh, really, his best attribute is that he has good control, but there's just not a lot of projection there. He's a senior. Uh, he was a 35th round pick of the Reds last year who didn't sign, and now we get selected in the 10th round, even though his performance actually was worse as a senior than it was his junior year. But I think that you know a lot of scouts saw him because he was pitching on the top-ranked college team in the nation, and uh, that increase in exposure had him go up a lot of people's draft boards. So the Orioles also selected pitchers uh, in the fourth round, Kyle Simon from Arizona. In the fifth round, Matt Taylor, lefty from middle Georgia, junior college. He's already signed. Yes, already signed. Uh, Seventh rounder, Trent Howard, left-hander from central Michigan. And our ninth rounder, Devin Jones, right-hander from Mississippi State. There's been a lot of... In this discussion about the draft, uh, talk that I've read about junior colleges being underscouted and and stuff along that lines. Do you have any, I guess, input on that, James? I mean, certainly they are underscouted. They are uh, fertile ground for obtaining 
uh, baseball prospects who don't play for a major program. Um, you know, there's also the advantage of the fact that you can draft anybody who goes to a junior college regardless of their age, so they could, you can get them a little bit younger than you can get a uh, college junior. Which is, or, of course, you know, how the, uh, the Nationals ended up with Bryce Harper, because he got his GED early and went to a junior college. Yes. Right. Um, so, you know, there's that, but obviously... You know, there are a ton of junior colleges, uh, and there are not tons of scouts. Uh, you know, they also have more leverage than your regular college pick, and they face more uneven competition, so their statistics uh, can be a little bit less reliable, though who knows how reliable college statistics are at all. <laughs> right, it's the tools that they're trying to watch anyway, basically, right? Yeah. I feel like we've got a good segue. You keep mentioning how, well, there's a lot of players and not a lot of scouts, so the scouts can only see who they see. And uh, we've heard a lot in the past year about the Orioles specifically not having a lot of scouts on their staff uh, as compared to their direct rivals in the American League East. Uh, you know, could there be a connection here? I mean, you seem to think they've had a good draft. Uh, I don't know. Do, do you think the whole story about the lack of scouts that that came out last year and was sort of dissected and maybe forgotten about a little bit, um, do you think that this draft sort of redeems the organization a bit in that sense? I Sounds don't... a little silly now that I say that out loud, but oh well. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I can give that question a definitive answer. It's one of those things that I find troubling, but I can't necessarily say is bad in the same way that I felt like eliminating the Bluefield affiliate is troubling, but not something that I can go so far as to say is causing us harm. Uh, obviously just adding numbers isn't enough. You have to have scouts that you think are good, and you have to have scouts that are trusted by the people who are actually making the decisions. And it's hard for me to know without knowing about things that I can't to know how trusting of a guy Joe Jordan is, how trusting Andy McPhail is, you know, how much they need to surround themselves with maybe just a few people whose opinions they absolutely feel comfortable with or how much they're willing to listen to a lot of different voices. Well, that's uh, a great point. Hmm. So, you know, part of that definitely comes down to the individuals and their managing styles. Uh, you know, obviously you'd like, I would like there to be some way that the Orioles really have a detailed scouting report on just about every player in baseball, every prospect in baseball, every amateur who's likely to go in the first 30 rounds of the draft. 30 uh, rounds. Goodness gracious. You know, one way of doing that, I think, one thing that, you know, I really think is the future is going to be not just video, but, you know, video with enhanced data. Uh, you know, these kinds of investments that they put into young players make 
it, it makes sense that they should be recording every single college game, every college at bat, every pitch thrown. Uh, and then you can, you know, hire database people who can really develop algorithms that will go through all of that data and pull up interesting things and help you find intriguing sleepers, help you find things that would be useful to know about the guy you're going to take in the 20th round. Andrew, you're one of those people, well, aren't I, you? I was just going to say, I feel like I have like a professional obligation to say I totally 100% agree with James Feldman on this point about database engineers and analysts. Uh, it, it is really remarkable. Um, uh, obviously, I can't talk about the specific things that I've been working on, but... If he told us, he would have to kill us, I think. <laughs> and I, you know, I sort of told myself after I decided to to share a little bit of what I've been doing that I didn't want to get myself into a situation where I was going to have to say, I can't tell you about this. But working with specific teams uh, just to get that information doled out to them in the way they want it, you, you get a, a much larger, I guess, appreciation for not only the amount of effort that goes into putting all that information together, but also sort of the way you have to uh, finesse the information so that it's dissectable, not just by like me as a, a computer person or me as a, a saber-friendly person, but for anybody uh from like a manager who wouldn't know FIP from BAPIP or, or whatever. Um, that's that's sort of a uh, a relationship between uh, different front offices and and different ways of looking at things and how everybody has to be able to communicate. I, I guess and it's a lot trickier than I guess just saying i i mean i'm not even sure what point i'm making anymore but uh it's it's a lot harder to implement than it sounds at first glance or when james just says we should have video of everything and be able to put it all in a database and and be able to analyze it i mean that's an enormous undertaking that would take multiple years and, and a huge amount of investment to, to get to that point. And but it's probably people, a better investment than having, you know, Kevin Grant well, be the closer. Of course. <laughs> but, you know, we were talking about how the Orioles act very conservative yes. and, and, like, they're afraid to sort of be bold and make a mistake. And that just strikes me as the type of investment that it team with that mindset would just never make. You figure the Orioles would be like the 25th team to kind of get on board with that instead of maybe the second or the third. Right. Team, right? It's not like you hear about Tampa Bay going into Brazil and setting up baseball academies from scratch. And that's a huge investment that's that's not going to pay off for years and years and years. And has a huge amount of, of chance of failure associated with it. And I don't see the world of creating databases of college hitters and high school hitters and trying to glean meaningful information in a meaningful way 
as any less of a, a risk and a uh, investment, basically. I mean, I see it as it's definitely an investment. It's definitely a very large investment. I don't, I don't really see the downside because I think that the data that you would produce from that would almost certainly have value. I don't think that there's any way that it couldn't. I think that the data that you have has value when it comes to, you know, obtaining prospects from other teams and trades. I think that it has value even when it comes down to scouting opposing major leaguers when you have this data on them that begins as an amateur. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it is a very large investment. It is very forward-thinking. But a team like the Orioles has to get a competitive advantage somewhere. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I read Jonah Carey's great new newish book, uh, The Extra 2%. I gave it a hearty recommendation. I don't know if either one of you guys followed that. But the whole thrust of the book is how you need some sort of advantage. And you need every chance you see for an advantage, you need to grab it because this is professional baseball. You're not going to be handed a winning team or an advantage over somebody else. Like, if somebody else sees it, they'll take it. And, you know, one of the things I've been looking at since, really, since the season began is I just, I don't know where the Orioles are trying to get their extra 2% advantage over anybody else. It seems like everything they do is, at best, a good attempt at by-the-book success. I think that is a perfectly fair criticism to say. It really, to me, does not feel like the Orioles are kind of embracing that, okay, we need to do the extra 2% over somebody else. And, I mean, they... I don't feel like the philosophy is to try to find their own little niche and just be better than that at everybody else, or, you know, I don't feel like they're trying to just be better than everybody else at the game everybody else is already playing. It's like they're trying to do sort of their own thing that's not really super committed to, you know, being bold with it, but isn't, you know, whatever. It's just, uh, I don't know. Well... It's hard, it's hard to judge this for me because there is the stated McPhail philosophy of, you know, growing, growing pitching and paying for hitting, which we haven't really seen go into practice yet, but which is somewhat fundamentally sound. The idea that pitching on, at market price is too variable to be worth it. And that but of should, course... We've seen them spend more on pitchers in free agency than hitters, especially the most variable type of pitcher, the reliever with the gaudy saves totals. That is true, though we have yet to, you know, pursue any of any starter in free agency, and you know, part of this, part of this philosophy, at least as I see it, is that uh, our good pitchers that we develop. You know, be it Guthrie or eventually uh, Arietta or Britain, will not be extended. They will be traded. Uh, you know, in the sense of Scott Casimir, they'll be dealt at their peak before they hit free agency, and we will keep replacing them with newer and younger pitchers. 
And there's a core of truth there where I feel like if the Orioles stick with that and really do that through this generation of young pitching, that could be a competitive advantage. It it, could but be. it's not like the Red Sox aren't doing the exact same thing. I mean, they just traded away two top 50 prospects for Adrian Gonzalez. And then they were almost, it, it was like uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You strike two down and four rise up in their place. You know, I mean, they've got that machine running. And the Orioles are just trying to match them, basically. Well, the Red Sox are the best run franchise in baseball, and that's a problem. <laughs> Because the I best. mean, and that's who we have to compare ourselves against. We that have is. to. They are our rival. Until until non-alignment takes place, yes, that's true. <laughs> we're uh, alignment where the Orioles are just in their own division. Well, well, yeah, we're crossing our fingers for some kind of a realignment to come out of that new. I'm actually I not. I yeah, actually. I'm not, I, I'm not I really, you know, I I would be very disappointed if we got that kind of a system without our ever having the chance to really succeed beating the Red Sox and the Yankees. I want to beat the Red Sox and the Yankees. I, that, that's, I think, a good goal. I could not have said it better myself. After watching them kick our butts for so long, it would be good to kind of be better than them under the current rule set. And I don't suppose it matters anyway, because... The track record of um, Bud Selig as commissioner of Major League Baseball is not to have that kind of bold change, really. So, I don't. I would. I wouldn't even expect to have see a change of It's also worth noting if the alignment that's being proposed went through and it was a 15-team single division, the Orioles would still not be in a position to really make a run at a at a playoff spot, even now. I mean, they're just, they're not a good enough team for that, no matter what sort of division they're in. Right, even if it was five playoff spots, no divisions in the AL East, you're still talking three others are going to be New York, Boston, and probably Tampa Bay. So well, then the Orioles are just trying to be the fourth best, maybe. Certainly. The other, the other thing that I will say, and it's not a focus of how the Orioles talk about their player development, but the emphasis on having our top young players be up-the-middle players. You know, we can say that it's a coincidence that our top prospects were, you know, Weeders and now Manny Machado, and that, you know, Adam Jones was a big goal in center field. But there is a competitive advantage to be had by making sure that your best players play those positions. Uh, you know, we've seen the Twins be perennial playoff contenders with really Joe Maurer and a bunch of nobodies. Mm, I, I'm not sure that's fair. I mean, are we calling Justin Morneau a perennial until his concussion MVP candidate a nobody? Well, I mean, the question I would put there is, you know, he's an MVP candidate. He's an above-average player. But is he a deserving MVP candidate? Not really. He does well at sort of the rotisserie baseball stats, but he's not, and he's never been in the league of uh, Teixeira or a Miguel Cabrera in terms of being one of the very best first basemen in baseball. The other thing about the Twins, fair or not, is they get swept out of the playoffs in the first round by the Yankees, so 
I don't think that that I don't think that that means much. I mean, statistically speaking, you should expect a team that is good enough that they'll beat another team two times out of three in a seven-game series to win 25% of the time. I will be sad, though, this year, because it seems like that is not going to happen because the Twins have been terrible. Uh, But the past two years, I've been at Radio City Music Hall, both nights of Game 3 of the yankees Twin series, and walked out and checked the score and saw the Yankees beat the Twins and been disappointed. And it's, you know, that's sort of how I set my internal clock, and I won't get that this year. The Twins right now are as many games back from the Tigers as the Orioles are back from the Red Sox, which is nine. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's just, that's, uh, it's not good. They, They have not had what I would call a good year in the Twin Cities. They're eight and two in their last ten games right now, and that still leaves them at a twenty-eight and thirty-nine record. They're not very good at baseball. That's a tough. That's a tough year. Well, I guess it's you know there's a lot of year left. They're getting Mauer back tomorrow, or by the time everybody's listening to this, probably today. Uh, you know, who knows? how things go from there, but that is a division. I, you know, the Tigers aren't the Red Sox. <laughs> I look up, I see a nine game deficit behind Boston. And I say that's insurmountable for the Orioles in, in the middle of June, but behind Detroit, I, I'm not counting Minnesota out entirely. Just, you know, I know they're, they're finished basically, but we'll see. Stranger things. That's true. Stranger things have certainly happened. But uh, we were talking, we, we sort of segued a little bit into Manny Machado, and one of the things I've noticed, uh, something Keith Law said in a chat recently about Jonathan Shoup, or Jonathan Scope, none of us have any idea how to say his name, but he said he would look at him right now as maybe like a top 50 prospect in all of baseball, which is kind of a big jump because the last I heard him talking of him, he said he's a guy sort of to keep an eye on, and he didn't have a whole lot else to say. Um, but that gives us two position players right, right off the bat in the top 50 of all prospects in baseball between Machado and, and Shoup. I guess we'll, we'll go with Shoop. And then you add in Dylan Bundy and uh, maybe Dylan Bundy's brother sneaks into the conversation. I have no idea about where he would rank. He's on Frederick uh, right now, things, right? Yeah, Frederick, which just clinched the Carolina League first half championship in a playoff spot. So that's good for them. They, you know, Robert Bundy, not a small part of that, I would imagine. Jonathan yeah, Shoup, by the way, started this season at Delmarva, and he was batting 316 average, 376 on base, 514 slugging. He has already been promoted up to Frederick, which is the high A. So, we'll see how he does there. So far, he's only got about 50 appearances, uh, 289 average, 333 on base and slugging. So, not quite as good there, but small sample size, as we like to say. And 
And there's a lot of other interesting pitchers, mostly. Uh, guys like Ryan Barry, who's been hurt most of the year. Um, Dan Klein, who's hurt now. And uh, some of these other guys who will hopefully be entering the system sometime this, this summer, like Jason Esposito and uh, guys like that. It, it seems like the farm system was... Well, like right on the outside of the very elite and then we graduated weeders and matters and all these other players and then it took a big nosedive and everybody myself included uh, freaked out a little bit um because this the major league team still wasn't very good and then the farm system wasn't very good but now it seems like it's rebounded very quickly back up a little bit do you think that's fair i mean it's fair to a degree uh, you know, certainly, you know, we have an almost certain top 10 prospect in Machado, and that has a big impact. And he'll be being promoted to Frederick uh, after the uh, Sally League All-Star game that he'll be playing in. And so we'll get to see how he does against even more advanced competition. And for a 19-year-old, uh, he'll be extremely young for the for the league, and that's also uh, something to feel good about. As far as the pitching goes, I feel like our pitching has taken a pretty big step backward this year. I mean, the emergence of Bundy has been very nice. Uh, you know, he was an eighth-round pick who was an overslot signing, so things were expected of him. Uh, he's not in the same league as his brother, and while his statistics are good, I don't know if he'll crack anyone's top 100 prospects list, because he doesn't really have any real plus pitch. It's more that he has a very solid four-pitch mix, and he uses it well. And that's more back-of-the-rotation type stuff, and not someone who projects as a real front-line starter. Um... But, you know, it looks now like Dan Klein is going to have to have some sort of shoulder surgery. Right. Dan or... Klein, I think, has been in the, mentioned in the same sentence as Dr. James Andrews, which is never a good sign for uh, your health, I don't think. I think it's Dr. Lewis Yoakum, actually, the Angels doctor who did the surgery on him while he was at UCLA. I don't think I've heard about him going to Andrews, who deals more with elbow problems and shoulder problems. Maybe I was getting my doctors mixed up. It wouldn't be the first um, time. Come on, Mark. you got to focus easy tonight. Oh, I know, I know. But, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, we've seen Hobgood still hasn't taken a pitch. And, you know, I know that Orioles fans and people at Camden Chat in particular are really down on Matt Hobgood. But... There's still a lot of potential there. He's still a Golden Spikes winner. He's still somebody who has shown, you know, a plus curveball and, you know, solid low 90s heat. He has a frame where you think got to think there's more in that arm. Uh, you know, I feel like he's more a kid who's been mishandled by the organization and sort of been allowed or encouraged to be sort of secretive and pitch through pain. Uh... While really, you know, there's still a lot of untapped potential. While he didn't deserve to be the fifth pick, he was a definite first-round pick. 
Uh, there's still a lot of upside in Matt Hobgood's arm, but we haven't seen it. Uh, Cameron Coffey hasn't pitched. Uh, you know, a lot of the 2009 arms, which was supposed to be a really good class for pitching for the Orioles, simply haven't really thrown a professional pitch this year. Well, a lot of those guys were kind of known to be injury risks when they were taken. Is that correct from that draft well, particularly? Certainly Coffey and Randy Henry and Ryan Berry were all thought to be injury risks. Uh, you know, Matt Hopkins was considered to be the opposite. He was considered to be very durable. Um, you know, but I don't know that there's, as of yet, any real definitive information about what makes a pitcher more or less of an injury risk. Obviously, with Dan Klein, we had the history of soldier surgery. So that's a factor. So speaking of stocking up the system, on the last podcast, Andrew and I were kind of pondering who could come up from like triple a or double a if you've got ineffective guys and there's like nobody there who's just blowing anybody away i mean the best we really have in the system is probably steve johnson at Bowie, who's got a 2.16 era over 58.1 innings pitch and he's the only guy really looking at it whose numbers stand out at you so the orioles just you know that's one of the things hopefully they can do with this draft or the last draft is get guys that they can develop and start filtering upwards so they can get up and start contributing. In, well, certainly. I mean, club. Cole McCurry is definitely, I think, an interesting pitcher. You know, he just got promoted uh, to North. Love that name. Love that name. Um, you know, he, he was a late-round pick. He doesn't have a lot of velocity, but uh, he's had good success. He's been dominant since they moved him to the bullpen, especially he just destroys lefties. I think he's given up two hits to left-handed hitters all year. Um, and he's somebody who I think, you know, has potential in terms of being, you know, a bullpen lefty who can replace, uh, you know, some of these journeyman guys that we've had playing in our actual bullpen. Um, you know, I think that there's not much reason why... Chris Tillman or Brad Bergeson are in the minors anymore. I don't have really any complaints about, you know, one of them being in our major league bullpen or being our fifth starter. Guthrie goes down. You don't want to see more Chris Jakubowskis? Not really. I mean, mostly because I can't pronounce his name. Um, well, I don't think I, any of the broadcasters can either, so that uh, puts you in good company. Not that there's anything. Not that there's anything wrong with him. Uh, you know, I don't really have a problem with the Orioles selling off anybody they can and filling the roster at this point with sort of quad A players and prospects. Uh, you know, there's we don't have much to lose by letting uh, however you pronounce his name pitch. <laughs> Chris, we'll just call him Chris. Chris. Letting Chris pitch is, you know, it's fine. We're not a contending team. He's playing for the league minimum. Let him pitch. Although, just to kind of throw a little bit of counterpoint there, uh, James, when you get totally into that mindset, you get kind of like the 2007 end of the season when we had that 30-3 uh, to game against Texas. I think to some extent that might have been the result of saying, well... What can it hurt? We'll just have, although 
it wasn't really young guys that were getting bombed that no, game. I, I, I seem to remember Paul Shuey. Right, he was old. Out there getting blown away. But at the end of the day, losing four to three or thirty to three doesn't actually change how we are in the standings. It's one game in the standings, but that game still just sticks in my craw. So let's see. I'm looking at the box score here. In that game, Daniel Cabrera gave up six earned runs. Brian Burris gave up eight. Jim Palmer's favorite, Brian Burris. Oh, my gosh. Let's see. We had Rob Bell give up seven. Rob Bell is 34. Do not even remember Rob Bell. Paul Shuey gave up nine. Yeah, I remember the saddest quote. Maybe the only thing I really remember from that game was afterwards, Paul Shuey said he was talking to like a friend of his, and they said, weren't you even trying? And he said, yeah, I really was. <laughs> and it's just like, well, I mean, I, I can't really pile on the guy any more than he already knows how much he sucks, you know? Yeah, I mean, Stacy likes to say that I can be dispassionate about you know these single games because you know I don't live in the Baltimore area. I don't get to see every game. I don't get to see very many. Not games. that that should ruin anybody's anything because I don't live in the Baltimore area anymore either. And for the majority of my adult life, I haven't. And I mean that hasn't affected my passion for the Orioles at all. I don't think. I, I think that's a, you know, no offense to fearless leader, but that's a ridiculous assertion to make. Well, but at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't live and die by the single game performances. I don't, you know, I don't share the same sort of visceral anger at Kevin Gregg. Uh, well, or... you should. I'm changing you should. my mind. You should, James. I'm with Stacy. You should. You know, I mean. It, it 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 really doesn't. I don't think it matters whether we lose on a blown save in the ninth inning or whether we lose thirteen to four. Um, you know, we we don't. We're not a winning baseball team because we just don't have good enough players. <laughs> and there was there was not to sidetrack you more than a little, but uh, there there was an article in the Baltimore Suns website today saying. It's your turn. Make one realistic move that will improve the Orioles today. And I, I read that and thought, like, well, one move is not going to help anything. You know? Well, well I mean, you know, you could make one move that would help things. You could, say, trade Guthrie for... Uh, yeah, if, if you could get uh, Jesus Montero or Yonder Alonso, that would be something that I think would help. I, I don't know if it would help the Orioles well, I, today. I just think the problem is much larger than any quick fix can really fix. Yeah, we're not right at now. a one-step solution here. Uh, we'll be lucky if we've got a ten-step solution, I think, right? You know, if we brought in, like, a superstar slugger somehow in the middle of the season, which would not happen, uh, you know, then we could have a good offense, but we still have a million holes in the bullpen and a bunch of young pitchers who, you know, you you look at 
Brian Maddox is the perfect picture of how fragile the whole grow the arms strategy really is right now. Oh, I really hope he gets his groove back soon because it's really was kind of painful seeing the results of that game on Sunday where he was just getting knocked around and wasn't holding the runners. So, well, I mean, Craig Tatum was catching, but still, you know, what was that? Five stolen bases and uh, one and a third, one, two thirds or something. Ugh. But, well, go ahead. I mean, I think, I, I, I obviously there's a degree of risk there. Um, you know, one of the ways that the Rays have ensured against it is that they seem to have perpetually a couple of starters in AAA who would be in the majors on almost every major league team, but simply can't find a way to break into the Rays rotation. Um. In an ideal world, you'd like to have a similar situation with the Orioles, where, you know, if Mattis goes down, that there is somebody right there ready to step in and maybe not be as good as you expected him to be, but who can still be average to above average. Uh, it takes time to get there. You know, this investment, we're, we're really at the first wave of uh, young players that have arrived in the you know, Jordan McPhail era. Uh, and it's to be expected that some of them will not succeed. It's to be expected that, uh, you know, if if of the big three of the Mattis, Tillman, Arietta group, only two of them turn out to be good Major League starters, that's better than average. That's better than we've gotten out of the last, say, decade as far as trying to grow our own pitchers, for sure. Um, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm starting to get the feeling like the Orioles, as constructed, are not going anywhere, and that it's time not just to look at trading away these sort of pieces that we add, the sort of the specific hope that they'll be tradable commodities like a Derek Lee, but it's time to start looking to some of what we consider the core of the Orioles and to look at trading an Adam Jones. Uh, oh, oh, I'm going to have to go cry. If we need to blow up the team again, I don't know what I would do. I, I would really I mean, cry. We'd blow up the team and we'd be left with still kind of a bad team. Well, yeah. yes, but we'd be left with you know, I think Matt Weeders is definitely a player you can build around. I think Matt Weeders is, you know, looking like, based on just his exceptional defensive value, that he's looking as if he's going to become a five-win player. Uh, and that's, you know, a real fundamental building block. But I just don't, I don't necessarily see the Orioles, particularly with the massive drop-off in Nick Markakis's play at the same time that his you know, salary is escalating considerably. Uh, you know, Adam Jones, who's, you know, going to be gone in two and a half seasons, or at least having to be signed at a market price, uh, I don't necessarily see him as being on a contending Orioles team. Why not? Because I don't, I think our window is now maybe more than two and a half years away. Well, why not extend him? I mean, you, you say, or he'll have to have a new contract, but 
would the cost just be prohibitive to building a winning team around him at that point? Well, part of that depends on how much he costs. You know, there are players who have given hometown discounts to re-sign. Uh, Nick Markakis wasn't one of them. Nick Markakis signed uh, a pretty generous deal when we extended him. Uh, his contract is going to escalate into over $10 million territory, uh, and he'll end, he'll end being paid $14 million a season, uh, which is, you know, pretty much market value for his best season and more than market value for what he's provided us for the last couple of years. Um, if we're paying market value for what Jones produces or above market value, then I don't think it's a very good decision because I don't think Jones, I think Jones is simply not that great and not likely to be that great. Uh, it seems like surplus- we probably want Adam Jones to maybe be our third best position player rather than to have him be, you know, Adam Jones is our best position player or something like that, right? It- well, he's our third best position player now behind Weeders and Hardy. I don't think that, I don't think that Adam Jones is, I don't think it makes sense if Adam Jones right now with what I see his upside as being is our, you know, fourth best position player. So and and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but uh, James is pretty much ready to uh, put out the dynamite, spool the wire, get it going to the plunger, and just uh, just take it and go boom. Yeah, I mean, I I just for us it's so crippling that we're getting so little value out of Roberts and Marquez right now. Um, those guys are really supposed to be our key contributors. And it looks like in the most bizarre turn of events, like Roberts may be undone by having hit himself in the head with a bat. And then sliding headfirst into first base. Um, and then I, I don't know what's wrong with Nick. Uh, I don't know why we've seen this three-year decline. But at this point, it's a three-year trend. It feels very real. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, just an aberration, just some bad luck. Uh, And we're locked into those guys, and we're locked into those guys for a lot of money going forward. And there's no way at this point, you know, we can't trade Marcakis and get value for him. We can't trade Roberts and get value for him. Uh... So we've really seen our two best players become non-factors and non-factors at a high price. And with that being the case, and with Jones not developing quite as well as we hoped, and you know, Weeders being a different kind of star than we anticipated him being, you know, there's people... There's a lot of people at Camden Chat. There's a lot of people who we talk to who want to extend Guthrie and extend Hardy. And there simply, I don't think, are the resources to have Mark Kakis making $12 million and Roberts making $10 million and Hardy making $10 million and Guthrie making $10 million. And for us to still add an elite player like a Prince Fielder. And... 
we need something in addition to what we have because what we have and talking about extending Guthrie and Hardy that would leave us with what we have and nothing more is obviously not good enough even yeah. even if Nick Marcus were playing as well as he played last year this would still not be good enough yeah I, I think that's the basic point so I think that you know without a lot of high upside talent that's you know, on the cusp of the major leagues. Um, you know, I mean, I still think that there's some promise in Josh Bell, but obviously Josh Bell isn't going to come up in a year and be, you know, uh, all-star third baseman. Uh, so that, you know, the elite talent of the future has to come from somewhere. And the talent that we really have that we, that has the value to bring back not just, you know, a B minus or a C prospect, but, you know, guys with real star upside is Guthrie, Hardy, and uh, Jones. Do you think uh, one of the things I've been sitting down to write this and it hasn't come exactly as I wanted it to, so we can just talk about it now. Uh, Luke Scott, should he be in that conversation? I feel like I just saw a list of left fielder OPSs, and Luke Scott is near the top of that list in 2011. Because left field is a terrible position in the AL this year for whatever reason. Right, and I feel like he's been hurt, and then he got a cortisone shot, and who knows what his health situation is now. But that could be like a reasonable upgrade for a lot of teams. I was thinking specifically, uh, and I'm terrible at, at trying to come up with mock trades. So. Well, I think everybody is terrible at that, Andrew, so it's okay, including the <laughs> well, people who do trades. <laughs> I was thinking um, Seattle is a team that's in the race and needs somebody who can hit the baseball. Uh, you could trade him over there. Uh, I, I have no idea what you could pick up. I was looking at uh, Nick Franklin. I, I don't know if that's like a realistic thing or not. Um yeah, that's, he's way too good for Luke Scott. But more importantly, you know, the read that I've gotten from the stuff that I've read, uh, I don't think that anyone wants Luke Scott. I think they don't want him because he's a loud mouth. I think they don't want him because he's a nut. I think that the extent to which they might have wanted him is diminished by the fact that he's playing with a torn labrum. Um, even if he, the fact that he's playing decently with a torn labrum uh, I think that that and the personality thing just scare teams off. Well, we saw last year um, rumors about the Rays trying to pick him up. Um, obviously, the Rays are not scared of weird personalities since they just went to this Manny Ramirez thing and seemed to have come out just fine uh, through it. Better off um, without him, uh, in fact. Is, is that maybe a team that could benefit a little I you know, they have Johnny Damon DHing and Luke Scott's better than Johnny Damon. I mean, you know, to a degree, but to a degree I don't know, you know, Johnny Damon is a sunk cost. Uh, you know, they already have him. Uh they're on the hook for paying him. Uh, you know, to pay him and to give up, you know, an interesting player for Luke Scott seems like a high price, especially when you have 
you know, you're Tampa Bay and you just have so many internal solutions. Uh, if you want to upgrade your play in left field, you have Desmond Jennings is a, you know, is in the minors, Brandon Geyer, who they got in the Matt Garza trades in the minors. Um, there's just so many options that they have that I don't, I don't see it being likely that they're going to give up something useful for Luke Scott. And that's why well, they're ahead of us in the standings, I guess. Do, do you think, um, I, I guess what you're saying is basically we had Luke Scott at his most tradable for health reasons, for whack job reasons, um, and we still have him. And I guess what I'm thinking is this is the mistake that I don't want to see the Orioles make with a guy like Jeremy Guthrie, who seems like he's at his most tradable right now. And if we hold on to him and he declines and he's not tradable, especially if we extend him, I mean, that just sets the organization back. I really hope we're not already past that point. Like, he had that back whatever today. Like, I hope that's not going to ding his trade value, and we've already yeah. got kind of past the event horizon for when we should have traded Jeremy Guthrie, if we should have traded Jeremy Guthrie, which, I I mean, it, it pains me to say, but I think that's better for the team in the long run if we do that. I mean, I think that we may, you know, depending on how badly he's hurt, and it looks like he might really be hurt, you know, we might not be able to trade him this season. If he's not back and performing at a high level in the major leagues before the deadline, uh, then we won't be able to deal him this season. We may be able to deal him in the off season, or we may be able to get something for him as a rental at next year's deadline. Uh, I don't really feel like we waited too long. I don't feel like we were likely to. We were obviously going to get a better deal for him closer to the deadline than the teams that know they're contenders know that they're contenders. That's a very good point. The wheat hasn't been sorted from the chaff yet, uh, if you will. So, you know, the, uh, we might have been able to trade him in the off season, but once the season began, it was, you know, a crapshoot that he was going to stay durable uh, through the trade deadline. And we may have gotten bad luck there. So on that note, uh, it's about time for us to wrap up because we've been talking for a long time. So, Andrew, do you have any final thoughts on anything to do with the Orioles at this um, moment, moment in time? Well, I sort of want to segue back into how much I hate Mike Gonzalez. Not as a person. He's, I'm sure he's a fine person, just as a player. Um, never a, never just, a bad I, time to bring that up. I really hate his guts. Um I don't know why that's the only thing I can think of right now. Yeah, I feel bad for Mike Gonzalez. <laughs> well, as a person, I feel bad for him. I mean, his skills have deteriorated horribly. But he's very rich, and he'll, I'm sure he'll live a very happy life as soon as he gets off the Orioles. James, how about you? Final thoughts on anything? Draft? Whatever. Well, I mean, the one thing that I'll say, and I'm going to write this at the site, you know, getting Bundy is obviously the key in this draft class, but the two things that we really have to get done are we really have to get, most importantly, we have to get our sixth-round pick, Nick Delmonico, a prep player out of Tennessee. He has to get signed. Um, also signing our 12th-round pick, Jason Coates, out of uh, Texas Christian is also a big get. 
he really was he was ticketed for being you know a second or third round pick uh, before the season. He deserved to be picked in maybe the fifth or sixth round. He fell to us in the twelfth for reasons I can't quite fathom. Um, but he's got a really really good bat, a lot of potential there. And while he's just a left fielder, you know, we're really talking about a guy with sort of no reliable potential in the 12th round. Well, uh, I certainly would like to have another Nolan Reimold uh, on the Orioles. So, you know, those guys really um, will be the, the devi- you know, Bundy is a great get, but those guys will be the defining line between how well this draft really looks out. Turns out, I think. So James's final thought is sign all the good people. Uh, my final thought is we got to stop batting Nick Markake a second. Please, please, oh please, 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 move him down in the order. That's the thing that frustrates me the most right now. He's just, he's not a number two hitter right now. We got to, got to do something about it. It's like I was looking at all of the Orioles position players relative to all the players at that position. Uh, like what the team is getting relative to the other teams. And the four players doing the worst or the four positions doing the worst relative to baseball were second base, where Brian Roberts was leading off, right field, where Nick Markakis was batting second, first base, where Derek Lee was batting third, and DH, where Vlad is still batting fourth. And it's like, well, how many runs are we going to score when our top four hitters are doing horribly and we just leave them there? And that's 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 it. The lineup needs to be shuffled, and uh, that's that's my final thought for now. So, uh, like like alcoholics at closing time, I guess it's time for us to get cut off. So, Andrew, James, been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for joining us, James. It, it was fun. Yeah, I'm hoping we can uh, get get the band back together sooner or later. For those two very fine gentlemen, I am Mark Brown. This is Camden Cast. Go O's, we're out of here.